When we say radical rhetoric, I'm really getting at this idea of how do you communicate when you need to communicate something that everyone needs to hear, but no one wants to listen to. And I think the prophets give us an example of this unfiltered commitment to truth, even when they know people are going to reject what they have to say. Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Yohoff. I am a professor of communication at Biola University in La Mirada, California, and I'm also the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project with my good friend, Rick. Rick. Tim, thanks for the introduction. I'm Rick Langer, and as Tim mentioned, we're sharing responsibilities for directing the Winsome Conviction Project here at Biola. I'm also one of the professors in the Biblical Studies and Theology Department, and I'm the director of the Office of Faith and Learning. And it's a special treat for us today to have uh, Dr. Theon Hill with us from Wheaton College. Uh, and Theon, you have been doing some remarkable work over the course of the years about the relationship between rhetoric and social change, particularly as related to race, culture, American politics, things like that, and uh, paid particular attention to areas of what's called radical rhetoric. I am not the communication scholar here in the room, so I'll let you guys have a radical rhetoric conversation. But the importance of this kind of uh, conversation for our, our kind of civic engagement, public advocacy, and just really the flourishing of our community. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on our, on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a blessing to be with you, brothers. Well, thank you. Hey, we thought we'd start with some background information, Theon. Mm -hmm. You have spent a good amount of time over the years helping white evangelicals understand the issue of racism within America. Before we talk about how you accomplished this, could you tell us a little bit about your personal history, how this task came to you and why you were willing to wade into it? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I was raised in the suburbs of Chicago with two parents who were deeply passionate about the legacy and persistence of structural and systemic forms of racism, both in the criminal justice system with my father, who was a, a criminal defense attorney in Cook County, um, which is where Chicago is for over 30 years, and my mother, who was a um, public school teacher in the Chicago land, and they raised me with a, a deep awareness of the relationship between my Christian faith and the impetus to fight for justice. And so when I got into high school, I became aware that I just had a deep passion to continue the work that they had modeled for me throughout their lives. And so I knew that whatever pathway I went into, whether it was a nonprofit, whether it was an academic route, I wanted an essential part of my vocational pursuit to be the fight for justice and in particular racial justice in my uh, life. And I think um, their example is more than anything else what led me in this direction. So, so Tim asked that question really nicely about, you know, you've spent a lot of time kind of interpreting, uh, you know, for, for white evangelicals, some of these issues about race. Um, I might have asked that question as, Theon, what were you thinking? Uh, it, it strikes me that this could have been a rather perilous, difficult, uh, problematic course you embarked on. How has this been for you? Yeah, I might, if I can reframe it a little bit, I think if you're speaking about a theme like justice, we don't just want to be preaching to the choir. So what we want to be doing is testifying to the truth of justice wherever God grants us an audience. And so for me, um, I've had several opportunities to engage with my uh, dear brothers and sisters in the white evangelical community. There's also been opportunities to engage with other communities um, in terms of 
the white evangelical community, I think one of the challenges there is um, you're trying to tell a group of people about a reality, not only that they've never experienced, but that everything in their experience tells them is not as bad as what I'm telling them it is. Mm. And so you're often fighting to try to communicate reality, share experiences and raise awareness where there's a fierce desire to cling to a perverted form of innocence. I don't want to see, I don't want to know. I just want to cling to the America, to the church that I know it to be. And because that was their firsthand experience, it doesn't, it's natural to cling to it in some sense because that's what they quote know. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that they're, we should know that intuitively. I guess I would think that you wouldn't think automatically that your particular experience was the experience and certainly not the universal experience, but we do tend to think that way. Exactly. And I think it's very easy to look at me and even try to delegitimize what I'm saying while I'm saying, well, you know, Theon, you have a PhD or you work here. Clearly, it cannot be as bad as what you're saying it's to be. So I think not only do we have certain experiences, but we look for evidence to validate our own experiences. And that's what makes the conversation fairly difficult in some of those spaces. And uh, Theon, we're both communication professors, and I do a, a kind of a wild exercise in one of my classes. I show them scenes from Steven Spielberg's Amistad. Oh, yes, of course. So, yeah, and, and the scene where he depicts the middle passage. Yes. I, I remember the first time seeing it. I, it's, it's even hard to articulate my reaction. But when I show it to my students, predominantly white, mm-hmm. we just sit there and we say, this could not have happened. Right. This, this I, I, one, we know very little about it. And Spielberg himself has made the point, you know, when it comes to Schindler's List, that's the Holocaust everybody knows about and you're taught about in high school. Right. When you right. come to the African Holocaust, it, it is almost like, I cannot believe this happened. Like, I, and so for you to step up, and I love your definition of rhetoric of creating reality. Yeah. When you create this reality to a predominantly white audience, what pushback do you get? What, what, what do people respond when you try to paint an America uh, that is just not relatable to the experience of many white evangelicals? Yeah. And I should note that you mentioning Amistad has me ready to say, give us us free, but I'm going I'm, I'm withhold, you know, <laughs> I'm withhold that impulse right now and, and answer the question. But um, it, the response is generally one of fighting to defend an identity. So if, if what I'm saying about the nation, about our history, about the church, if that's true, then there's a lot of questions that need to be raised about some of our treasured theologians, some of our cherished institutions, some of our um, annual rituals. Do we need to be sensitive to how that might be interpreted differently? I mean, this is what Frederick Douglass is saying in 1852 when he says, what to the slave is the 4th of July? So I think in terms of trying to communicate it, there's a defensiveness because I think many of them secretly realize the implications for the conversations we're having with regards to race for their own individual and collective identity. We have to rethink who we are as individuals and as a people if what many people who are striving to fuel a race consciousness, if what we say is true, we have to rethink a lot of things. So I'm dying to ask, what in the world is your approach to this? Like how going in, knowing 
that you're going to receive this defensiveness, not just an intellectual defensiveness, but an emotional defensiveness. I'm thinking of the proverb that says an offended brother is like a fortified city. Sure. Yeah. How do you how do you step in and, and and from a communication perspective, give it in a way that people can receive it, and, and it doesn't deteriorate in a heartbeat. What we're seeing in the argument culture today. Sure. Yeah. I think when we're trying to engage in some of these spaces, it's very tempting for us as communication professionals to think, how can I adapt my message to the audience? And I'm not saying that we should not be audience conscious, but I think sometimes our pursuit of adapting to our audience can actually prevent us from saying what actually needs to be said. For So for me, as someone who studies radical rhetoric, to your point earlier, Rick, um, what's really important to me is to speak the truth first. So my primary concern is always fidelity to my message. That actually, for me, displaces audience an audience-centered approach. Once I've been faithful for my message, well, if I can explain it, if I can use illustrations, if I can use explanations in a way that's going to resonate with someone, I'm going to do that. But first and foremost is, am I being truthful? Um, am I being honest? Am I being just in how I'm approaching this issue? And I think as we're looking at that particular pursuit, it's important to me not to try to be someone's Holy Spirit. I can't be someone else's Holy Spirit. So my calling as a Christian is to be faithful to the truth. If I've done that, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit work in the heart of the individual. Um, so I think that's really the approach that I take. Um, I try to, as much as, as much as possible, use devices like irony or other things to try to explain it in a helpful manner. But ultimately, I can't force people to understand what they don't want to understand. And I think for many of us, we think it's, oh, they're just innocent. They don't understand. And I think James Baldwin says this powerfully in his book, The Fire Next Time. It's innocence that constitutes the crime. Because at some point, we have to realize people are trying to stay innocent. It's not, no one's mm. trying to get this. And that's where I've probably come down in my communication strategies when it comes to some of these hot button topics of race. Can we define some terms real quick? Let's uh, do it. So you mentioned, of course, you're a, a student of rhetoric, but you mentioned that a lot of your research has focused on radical rhetoric yeah. as a crucial form of civic engagement and public advocacy. Can you help us under, can you unpack that a little bit of what is the difference between radical rhetoric and rhetoric? Yeah, especially. And let me add in one like complication to include in that, or not complication, but additional thing is to, and how does that connect to terms we use like civility or incivility? Sure. Yes. So if we want to understand radical rhetoric, the best place for us to go to is going to be the Old Testament prophets. What's interesting about the Old Testament prophets is they do the very opposite of what we would prescribe in many of our public speaking classes and rhetorical theory courses. Um, we would say that you need to be diplomatic, that you need to be um, adaptive, that you need to be focused on things like compromise in order to win an audience over. And that's going to come from, you know, many ancient Greeks and Romans who are going to tell us this is the best way to win friends and influence people. Um, the prophets do something very different. Isaiah walks around butt naked for three years just to tell Israel, this is how God sees y'all. And I'm like, so glad I never got that call, man. <laughs> um, if you read a passage like Ezekiel 16, he literally says, Israel is such a bad prostitute that it has to pay its own customers. That's how yeah. ugly it is in God's sight. And so when we say radical rhetoric, I'm really getting at this idea of how do you communicate when you need to communicate something that everyone needs to hear, 
but no one wants to listen to. And I think the prophets give us an example of this unfiltered commitment to truth, even when they know people are going to reject what they have to say. And we see that this tradition extends beyond just the Old Testament. We see it carried on in Ida B. Wells' anti-lynching campaign in the late 1800s. We see it carried on in Martin Luther King Jr. We see it carried on today by someone like William Barber, who are saying things and receiving a lot of pushback, but they're striving to be faithful to a message. Deanne, can I, so help me, so I, I just want to remind you, we're the Winsome Conviction Project. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're in real trouble. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm thinking of Proverbs 15.1. Sure. A gentle answer turns away rage, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we have often been, uh, people have often said we're anti-prophetic and, sure. and we are not anti-prophetic, but, uh, but help, um, help our listeners how this can be misapplied because I'm thinking in, in terms of Deborah Tannen's argument culture that are, are you giving license to people to be rude and to bypass civility and, and, and what John Gottman calls a soft startup rather, rather than a harsh startup. So I see what you're saying, but, mm -hmm. but let's address some misapplications of this. So what are you not saying? A lot of this depends on how we're defining terms like civility or winsome or even gentle to get to the Proverbs reference. Um, so if you think about the Old Testament prophets or any number of the activists, um, they're going to go to the people they're seeking to persuade. Hey, Israel. Hey, America. Um, we're seeing this concern. You all need to get it together. I'm going to try and say it nicely. I'm going to try and say it lovingly. I'm going to try and say it gently. Um, we might say. But there comes a time where maybe this sweet talk isn't working. So I have to press press beyond just saying it in a way that's palatable for an audience because even me making it palatable gives you license to turn away from it. Mm. And I think that's that's really where the prophets are stepping in. It's like, if you read passages like Jeremiah 35, God says, I sent all my prophets to you. I sent, I sent this to you. I tried everything. So it's going to sound really harsh, but this is the only way that I can strive to get your attention. And so the prophet is responding to, or the prophetic voice is responding to a state of crisis. Um, it's not just everyday talk, but this is a particular type of situation that you're responding to. Oh, so this, you may have answered my question. So help, help us unpack a little bit. You said there may come a time when this radical form of rhetoric is, is what's needed. Can you give us some of the precursors to that? Like, how do you know we've reached the time where it's now for me to take this turn towards radical rhetoric? Yeah, so I may, let's just say, you and I have a conflict or I have a conflict with the community that you're part of. And there's a issue that I feel I need to raise. Hey, Tim, um, here's a concern. Can you hear me out? Okay, you blow me off. Okay, I'm gonna try again. Hey, Tim and company, let's, let's keep pressing this conversation forward. We really need to think about this. This is really important. This is hurting us. Um, you all continue to blow me off. At some point, I'm going to communicate it in such a way where you cannot blow me off as easily. Mm. And I think that's where, if I can give an example for your audience, this is what Colin Kaepernick is doing when he takes a knee for the national anthem. It was, it was telling because for so many years, people had said, well, we don't want any violence. We want you to do it peacefully like 
Martin Luther King Jr. like this civil rights icon. Here you have an individual making a peaceful protest, but he's doing it in a way that offends the sensibilities of a large segment of the nation. And that to me is where he's like, this situation is so dire, I need to take a stance that I know is going to generate public attention. Now, we can talk about the strategies or various things that happen in terms of how he um, explains what he's doing, and we can maybe critique some of those things. But in terms of the nature of the protest, that's in line with how I understand prophetic discourse. And would you call what Colin Kaepernick did an example of, of radical rhetoric, or is it it seemed actually to me, if I were to suggest winsome conviction sort of alternatives, that actually I would probably point to Colin Kaepernick as actually having been a pretty good model of some of that exactly because yeah. it wasn't necessarily strident, but it was really hard to miss. Sure. Yeah. I, I think um, Colin Kaepernick would be a classic example to me of someone who's embodying this prophetic posture um, in this moment, in a way that's getting attention. Um, I, it's interesting, Brother Rick, you said it's not strident. What's, I, I, and I agree with you, it's not a strident protest, but so many people took it as that. I did notice that. I did notice that. You're right. Yeah, there was a couple of controversies. There was a couple, <laughs> a couple of times that stuff came up. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Theon, a quick comment. You will not believe the last class I took in my doctoral program at UNC Chapel Hill was with Michael Eric Dyson. On the yes. politics, the <laughs> politics of gangster rap music. That and makes we, me, that warms my heart. <laughs> oh my goodness. It, I, I still think about the, this class and we had to read his book between God and gangster rap. Of course. Yeah. So he is, he is advocating what you're talking about. There comes a time that the dominant culture will not listen to your message. Right. And, and that's where a gangster rap artist will write a song, be it cop killer or sure. whatever that now you're on the cover of Time Magazine. Everybody wants to interview you because they're mad at the uh, messaging, the mode, not the message. But you get to talk about not only the mode, but you get to talk about the message. Yes. Yes. And so I think, go ahead. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no go, go ahead. You're good, brother. Okay. So my only fear is I, I get that. And, and maybe this is where white America just never feels like the time is here that this is warranted. Mm-hmm. We never feel like it's okay for Colin to do what he does using the sure. sacred symbol of our national anthem. I, I get that. I'm just afraid that some people are going to say, finally, you gave me permission to just say it straight and I don't need to worry about civility or couching my terms in uh less offensive ways. Now I can just go for it because I'm always saying nobody's listening to me. Now's the time for me to go into radical rhetoric. Yes. I think you've always seen um, misappropriations or perversions of the prophetic tradition. I mean, there's a reason why false prophets were so popular in ancient Israel. Mm. Um, So uh, that's always been an ever present threat, but I would suggest that we shouldn't let the danger of an, of a, type of discourse or an approach to social change, we shouldn't let the danger of that being perverted prevent us from doing what we know to be right, because we can say, let's do this through other means. And this gets to the point that you you hinted at there. It's like, but what other means do we have? I, I always have my students ask me, you know, well, we just need more people like King today. And I always ask them, what happened to King? Remind me of that. How does that end? (laughs) I was like, the brother got shot and killed because even as much as we like to romanticize him, there's a reason why J. Edgar Hoover viewed him as one of the most 
significant threats to U.S. security in the 1960s. There's a reason why an assassin's bullet, bullet took his life. So I think it's easy for us to say, let's find another way to do it. My fear is that whenever we're saying that, we're can we find a way that offends our senses less? Well, Theon, this has been great. And obviously we have a lot more we need to say, but let me just give a quick wrap here and we'll pick this up in a second part of this podcast because uh, we, we definitely have a lot more things to talk about here. But uh, so thanks for being with us. Let me just uh, remind our listeners that uh, you can... Find the Winsome Conviction podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to get them. Check us out at winsomeconviction.com as well. Would be a great place to get some resources. And uh, we want to assure you that this conversation will be continuing. And so uh, we, we give this to you in two pieces. We really, really want to make sure you get both of them, particularly in this case. So uh, watch, stay tuned for uh, part two of our conversation with Beyond Hill.